This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever it is you're screaming. We are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the studio is Swinburne academic and author of Quality Telefantasy, Dr Andrew Lynch. Hey, Andy. Thanks for being back, Flick. Oh, of course. Got to have you back, especially for this episode. <laughs> and Triple R's talks producer and training coordinator and in-house reviewer, Adam Christou. Hello, hello, hello. I'm excited. It's, <laughs> is, this, it's, is this your debut? It's debut. I'm a big listener of the show, so always excited to come on here and talk about screen culture and films and TV. So pumped. Yeah. First time, long time. Mm. <laughs> You're locked in now. Um so for tonight's show, we're catching up on two recent franchise fantasy prequels. We've got Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon and Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. But before we get into the reviews, you may have heard about a recent campaign to identify representations of non-consensual acts on screen called Classify Content. The campaign is designed to highlight the lack of consent on screens and has been started by Consent Labs which is a not-for-profit organisation educating um, us about the changing culture around sexual consent. Um, and we have Angelique uh, Wan with us now, who is the CEO, co-founder and executive director of Consent Labs. Um, Angelique, welcome to Primal Screen. Thanks so much for having me on and also just acknowledging that I'm joining from Gadigal Land tonight. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so... Um, Angelique, you, before we get into the actual campaign itself, um, which is called Classify Content, how would you actually define non-consensual acts on screen and, and what does it actually include? Yeah, I think that is a really, really good place to start. So what we do at Consent Labs is champion an affirmative consent model. So what that means is consent that is freely and voluntarily given. Um, but it's consent that is it's actively sought, it's verbally communicated, especially if both parties or all parties um, are speaking, and absence of uh, any words or if there's silence, that's not consent. So we're really seeking that affirmative consent, that continuous consent. So anything that's not that is therefore a lack of consent. And I think one thing that we're really trying to to get across with this campaign and as well in the education programs that we do teach is that consent applies to all type types of sexual acts. It's not just excluded or only relevant to the actual act of sex. It includes every single act in and around and before and after that. Yeah, right. And and just to clarify, it is um, se- only sex acts though that are and, and sexually related acts that you're 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 focused on. That's what we're focusing in on this uh, campaign. But I mean, when we speak to consent more broadly in the education programs that we run with young people, it's about recognising that we use consent in our everyday lives. You know, every time you ask for permission to do something, um, 
you're essentially asking for consent. But yes, with this classify consent campaign, it's specifically focusing in on consent around sexual acts. And is the idea of the campaign to have a message before films and TV shows? Is that the idea? Exactly. So it would come up on your screens like any other sort of classification that you already see. Um, Think of classifications like nudity or coarse language. Similarly, there'd be a lack of consent classification popping up before you watch a, a movie or a TV show. Yeah, and it's really interesting to have that as part of it because I think for it really does bring it into the conversation. Um, with this, why, why is it so important, do you think, to have this classification for non-consensual acts? So we conducted a bit of research in the lead-up to this campaign and what we found was that three in five Australians were unable to identify a non-consensual act when seen on screen. And so I think what's currently happening is that a lot of really unhealthy tropes or non-consensual acts that we see on screen are unknowingly being normalised in real life. So, I mean, as an example, a surprise kiss, you know, you see that in most TV shows or movies you've ever watched, most definitely in something like a rom-com where there's no consent asked or gained before a kiss is had and that is being replicated in real life. I mean, I sort of reflect back on myself as a, a teenager and watching that play out on my screens, I thought that was to be expected of, you know, a, a kiss or a romantic relationship. I actually thought it was weird if someone asked you know, do you want a kiss? And it doesn't have to sound like that, but but I thought it was weird if the question was posed. Um, so I think if there's a classification on your screens, the hope is that uh, viewers or audiences are informed about what they're watching and go through, I guess, sort of that that internal reflection or questioning as to, okay, so what I'm watching is for entertainment purposes. I've been able to recognise that maybe that wasn't consensual, but I don't have to replicate that in my real life relationships. Yeah, and that's really interesting. I think that it's not about censorship, about saying Mm. we're not going to present these, but I can't – I resonate so much with what you're saying there. I feel like there's so many representations, particularly of relationships where you, as a teenager but even as an adult, you make Mm. sense and you do to some extent mimic what you see on screen. That is why film and television are so powerful. And the way it plays into culture of what gets expected. And I know that this has been brought up before with um, particularly romance. uh, Romantic films are a bit of a uh, a grey area with this because you think about how love bombing, which we now have Mm. language for in referring Mm. to toxic relationships um, or relationships where there is abuse or control there, And that so often gets presented in a romantic way, you know, the idea of the love interest showing up at your house unannounced, (laughs) Um, like you said before, being kissed without permission being given first. Um, that has become particularly of the 90s. You were, we were saying, talking about this off air before, Yeah, like, um, uh, like that 80s, 90s trope of like people running to the airport. You totally. Know, you, you've also got that whole era of 80s, 90s sort of frat boy comedy, um, thinking mm. things like Porky's and I'm yeah. thinking of things like American Pie, which had so many different layers of consent being broken, whether it's the idea of just even like spying on someone through a webcam and through various other means. There's just like so many layers of consent being broken in those films that felt like they were normalized across decades mm. of film and television. That's so true. Yeah. 
completely normalized or in many cases they're actually romanticized yes or trivialized like they're played off for laughs and I think it's only with hindsight and the benefit of good consent education that we're now starting to as you sort of said flick have the language or the vocabulary to be able to identify it for what it is so I think our hope with this campaign is that all Australians are really empowered with the language and with the education to be able to call out what they see on screens. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose that it's particularly pronounced for shows that we do have younger people watching, perhaps um, Mm. teens, because that's perhaps where some of that um, behaviour or those expectations are first formed. Um, And you do expect that as someone matures as a viewer that they might have, like you said before, be able to see something on screen and not say, oh, this is how I should be acting or this is normal, Um, have a bit more of a um, critical eye perhaps when watching those things. Um, I mean, that is is the hope. But I think, you know, we've seen so much progress in the way of consent over the past 18 to 24 months. And one really positive change that's happening is more comprehensive curriculums around consent actually starting to be embedded from 2023. And in that new curriculum, I think what they'll start to look at a bit more deeply is um, media literacy. So encouraging young people and arming them with the tools and the questions to be able to, as you said, critique and challenge what it is they're consuming. And it's not just isolated to movies or TV shows, you know, it's in social media, it's in all forms of, of media. So I think, you know, this classification sitting alongside a really comprehensive education system um, is really empowering young people particularly to be able to engage in healthy relationships and critique relationships when they see them on screen that maybe aren't so healthy and they don't want to replicate. Mm. And is that something that Consent Labs is directly involved with or is it a collaboration? So we actually provide education programs. That's sort of our our day-to-day. This classification was actually born out of conversations that we were having in the classroom with young people. So we provide consent education programs to high school and tertiary institutions. Um, So young people is really our passion. And time and time again, we were having conversations with students around how, you know, they get what consent is, they get why it's important, but actually using the language or asking the question just feels awkward at times. And it's because they've never seen it role modeled anywhere you know it's Mm. sometimes rare to see in real life um and it's almost impossible to see on screen so you know that's actually how we got the idea for classify consent was was out of the conversations coming from students yeah and I'm so glad we're getting an opportunity to talk with you about this campaign on a week in which we are talking about at least one show that um does step into this territory through Game of Thrones um And I think that what's interesting about some of the scenes in Game of Thrones, uh, and we are talking now (laughs) about the earlier earlier seasons of it, not the prequel that we'll be reviewing later, but that there are some really uncomfortable rape narratives that feature Mm. and a tremendous amount of violence and non-consensual sex that we see Mm. um, throughout the Mm. series. Um, And I think that now that we've got a shift in how people are reviewing and talking about films and television and having access to Twitter, Mm. I do feel as though there is a bit more um, discussion and analysis of these and perhaps that's changing, maybe not what we're seeing on screen, but at least it's being called out more. Yeah, and I think that's what we want. Like it's, as you sort of said, Flick, it's not at all about cancelling or censoring films. Like we are most definitely, you know, still 
allowed and meant to consume entertainment for entertainment purposes. But I think, again, it's just having that sort of moment of, okay, like I've identified this as a non-consensual act. And I think for me, what feels particularly important with this campaign and classification is, you know, when I first watched Game of Thrones, like it was obvious that that was a rape in a non-consensual scene. I knew that consent wasn't there, but it's in those scenes that are romanticized or trivialized. It's a really subtle Mm -hmm. non-consensual act that I think goes under the radars of, you know, those three and five Australians that we really want to pull out and highlight mm. um, because, yeah, I think most people can sort of identify the really violent stuff, but it's, you know, non-consensual acts can also not appear so violent on, mm. on the surface. Yeah, yeah. And I think especially for people who have experienced any form of mm-hmm. sexual harassment or, or abuse, mm-hmm. um, it mm. probably does mean a lot to say, to make be able to make that choice of whether you wish to watch that um, once you know that it contains that content. So, yeah, really valuable exactly. valuable work that you're doing. Um, so how do people, what are the next steps? How can people get involved? I understand that you were asking um, people to call, to pledge their support. Um, is that, was that classifyconsent.com.au? .au, yes, so that's, that's the right. Best so way, yeah. Yes, that's still live. We yeah. are very much hoping that, you know, everyday Australians really support the movement and the need to classify consent. Um so we'll be asking for everyone to pledge their support via our website, classifyconsent.com.au. And if we get enough momentum and traction, then we will be taking this to a formal petition um, because to change or add a classification is actually to change legislation. So, yes, we're just hoping to get enough uh, momentum or traction and then, and then hopefully petition the government. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Angelique, thank you so much for joining us on Primal Screen. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this chat. Me too. Um, For listeners, if you would like to know more information about this campaign, you can head to classifyconsent.com.au. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Andy Lynch and Adam Christou. On tonight's show, we are talking all about... uh, fantasy prequels. <laughs> I didn't know that would become a genre, but it has uh, because they both come out at the same time pretty much. Uh, just prior, we you would have heard uh, Wiseblood with Something to Believe. Uh, and earlier tonight, I, uh, we had the pleasure of speaking with Angelique One from Consent Labs about um, new classification um, pledge, sorry, new classification um, campaign to do with non-consensual acts that are happening on screen. And I feel like we're going to dive straight into some non-consensual acts pretty soon with Game of Thrones, the uh, House of the Dragon, which is the title I keep messing up. I have a very short clip to play for you now just to get you in the mood. War is afoot. Do you think the realm will ever accept me as their queen? A woman would not inherit the Iron Throne. Because that is the order of things. When I'm queen, I will create a new order. Your family has dragons. They are power men should never have trifled with. If Rhaenyra comes into power, she can cut off any challenge to her succession. I am to inherit the Iron Throne. She will block my way. Remain as one. Oh, our hearts were never one. You can never imagine. 
imagined yourself on the Iron Throne. Andy, have you ever imagined yourself on the Iron Throne? Uh, no, as we learn uh, from this prequel <laughs> series, the Iron Throne is very pointy and you can easily <laughs> suffer uh, very unpleasant staff infections by sitting on it for too long. So I shall avoid that at all costs. <laughs> so I'm so glad to have you on for this episode because you did your PhD. Game of Thrones was one of the TV shows that you talked about in your PhD and that PhD has since been turned into a book called Quality Tele Fantasy, what's the full title? (laughs) (laughs) Um, How US Quality TV uh, brought androids, dragons and zombies into the mainstream. Wonderful. I love it. Um, So tell us about House House of the Dragon. Okay, so it's been, what, three years since Game of Thrones, uh, HBO's dark fantasy epic uh, ended on, we'll say, a contentious note, you know, divided fans uh, with that final season. Um, So House of the Dragon is a prequel that takes place around 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones. Uh, So like uh, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon is based on the writings of fantasy author George R.R. Martin. In this case, not really a novel or series of novels, so to speak, but an encyclopedic faux history book he wrote called Fire and Blood. He also hasn't finished that yet, incidentally, uh, which tells us us the extensive history of the Targaryen family. So these are the blonde dragon-riding monarchy of which Amelia Clarke from Game of Thrones, uh, Daenerys Targaryen, is probably the most famous example. So this is her extensive uh, family history. Um, It's adapted for TV by Martin himself, so he's, you know, really uh, working alongside uh, the other showrunners, um, alongside Ryan Condal and Miguel Sapochnik. Sapochnik uh, directed some of the biggest kind of battle episodes in Game of Thrones. Right, okay. Uh, and I suppose we're going to be shown across a number of seasons the end of House Targaryen, uh, leading up to and covering a war of succession known as the Dance of Dragons. So if you liked the, the dragons, I guess, from Game of Thrones, I think we're going to get <laughs> this is a dragon palooza. I actually feel like uh, we'll go into this in more depth, but I'm glad the dragons are back. They're definitely my favourite thing about the series. And I must say, the dragons themselves uh, in this new series, I, I was I think I had a little dragon fatigue. As much as I enjoyed the dragons in Game of Thrones, <laughs> these are some wonderfully new-looking dragons. They're very yeah. individual. They've got great vibes, great names. Uh, my favourite so far is Sea Smoke. What an evocative <laughs> name. It, he's named by a teenager. Though. So I'm like, oh yeah, a teenager would call his dragon something cool like sea smoke. <laughs> and also the CGI seems to have come along a fair way. Is that just my my keen my um my what was it dragon lust coming out? Or I just thought that they they do seem better on screen. I'm I'm not sure if it's let's say. Uh, Better. There's. A, I, I've definitely seen a few janky compositions, um, <laughs> but I think. I think really the design is is the real star here. I think that's everything from you know the the computer generated effects through to the costuming and the sets. I think everything really seems really nicely considered and put together, um, mm. as it was in, in Game of Thrones as well. And we got some heavy hitters on board. Paddy Constantine, that man can do no wrong in my eyes. I love that you call Paddy Constantine a heavy hitter because I've had to go <laughs> out of my way to be like, hey, friends, Paddy Constantine's in this show. And oh, everyone yeah. goes, who the heck is Paddy <laughs> Constantine? That's true. Maybe it's a niche fan base. <laughs> yeah, it's like, do you like awfully grim British dr- realist dramas, then you know Paddy Considine. <laughs> he actually, I can't remember, oh, is he in the Born Identity films as a journalist? And it's got a, yes, got he that? is. And he's, it's like the best on-screen representation, most accurate representation of a journalist where he actually does look sleep-revived and looks like he's really working to a deadline. 
Well, journalists always look gorgeous and, you know, it's just never accurate. Sorry to all the journalists out there, but I, <laughs> I think we all know what it's like to work to a deadline. You look haggard. <laughs> he's one of those people that just brings, like, even in small roles, he's had smaller roles, he's had bigger roles. Um, I think you mentioned the fantastic uh, drama film Tyrannosaur. Yeah, we're saying that off air. It's his directorial debut, um, stars alongside Olivia Coleman, who, again, like, wonderful. Um, really difficult film to watch. Mm. Uh, we're talking before about consent. It's a really tricky film, um, but wonderful. I, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, he was also starred in Dead Man's Shoes, which was yes. an independent uh, film. film. Yeah. That's where we get to see the kind of grim, stoic version of Considine. But Absolutely. I love when he plays these kind of bumbling fools as well, <laughs> which is kind of the other mode that he's in. And, and a ridiculous blonde wig. <laughs> oh, I, I, I couldn't believe, you know, this is the, you know, the, um, the you know, great, 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 great grandfather, I suppose, of uh, Daenerys Targaryen, who's this, you know, powerful, you know, forthright character. And I love to see this, like, old fool that, <laughs> that she's playing with with this wonderful, as you say, this stringy long wig. He's poking himself on the throne. It's a, it's a really interesting interpretation of these dragon-riding Targaryens. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, Adam, what are you, how many eps are you in, firstly? I'm three episodes okay. in. All right. and You're the most long, I think, of all yeah, of us. And- and I'm really enjoying every single thing about this show in a way that I did not think was going to happen with me because, you know, <laughs> I am one of those people that really fell off Game of Thrones pretty hard in those final two seasons. It really did feel like once the books sort of ran dry and they were kind of working off their own steam, the showrunners kind of just sort of started taking the show in really odd directions and it sort of lost its sense of place and mm. purpose. And that was the first thing that really grabbed me with House of the Dragon is I feel like there's a sense of place here. Mm. I feel like King's Landing is a city which was quite prominent in Games of Thrones and where, you know, pretty much everything is centred on in House of the Dragon feels much more like a real place in a way that I haven't perceived in Game of Thrones before. It feels like I can actually start really understanding the layout of the city in a better way. It feels like it's more breathed and lived in. And it's just these subtle elements like that that are really working for me. Mm. The feeling of like I am watching the Wikipedia entry of history of these characters uh, in a gloriously Tudors-esque sort of show. Like, it's it's very much the Tudors with dragons, which is also <laughs> why I'm here for it. It's, like, less grandiose in its scope. It's a little less epic than Game of Thrones That's with its true. sweeping, like, yeah. hordes of, like, undead coming in from the north. Um, the ensemble class is a little bit more closer knit and closer in towards King's Landing and the, the you know the, yeah. the actual monarchy that's reigning. Yeah. Um, less far flung around the realm, and as a result, it just kind of has this sort of um, softer sort of feel to it, this sort of closed in feel, which I really appreciate a lot. It's um, it's like an attention to detail thing that I'm really enjoying in House of the Dragon. Never thought I would say this about Game of Thrones, <laughs> <laughs> which was like spectacle based in the biggest totally. way, and constantly moving its carries characters around from episode to episode like they were chess pieces, yeah. with like no thought about how long it takes to get from X to Y. And it, like I appreciate on this show, they try to explain how long a trek takes from one part of the realm to another, and that a dragon is basically an airplane, so it can get there really quick. There's yeah. some context for what's happening here. Oh, we got yeah. a little. Uh, there's a, a, a. I don't think it's a spoiler to say there's a ship siege that's occurring. <laughs> You know, not too far into the series, and there is lots of logistical discussion of like, oh, look, we're losing ships, and it's going to be at least three weeks before we can get anyone else down here. Well, hopefully a dragon could show up, but nonetheless, like it, it has yeah. that sense of space. Even though, as you say, we are mostly located within that kind of political heart of King's Landing, people either as part of the monarchy or kind of the you know the connivers that are adjacent to power. And yeah, I really like that as well. And I think, as you say, it's the ensemble cast. There's not. 
at least, you know, I love Paddy Considine. We haven't talked about Math Smith oh, yet. Yeah. Did you just call him Matthew Smith? <laughs> Math, the fine Matthew Smith, um, who plays the younger brother of, of the king, uh, King Viserys, played by Paddy Considine. So he plays Damon Targaryen, who's like the, the I was going to call him the naughty younger brother. I think that's probably an understatement. Um, Very naughty. <laughs> absolutely. But he's probably the closest thing we have to kind of a, a standout, you know, I guess people's people's choice fan favorite character. Otherwise, it's just a lot of these interesting kind of power players and maneuvers played by largely wonderful uh, character actors, or 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 kind of as in some cases, uh, like for example, the Australian performer Millie Alcock, who's playing the the princess. The absolutely fantastic relative newcomers who just really mm. make this place, as you say, feel kind of lived in too. Yeah, and I think that really anchors it. Um, I think we should also mention Reese Ifans, another Brit, um, who's part of the cast. Uh, those performances are really strong and I've heard some criticism about the, you know, we don't have the, the witty dialogue of the first one, but I, I think this is a more of a slow burn. And, and like you said, Adam, I actually think that that's situating us in King's Landing and, and situating us in the polit- politics of it is done really well. They're, they are taking their time with it. One of the criticisms I had when I first got into Game of Thrones and everyone was so hyped about it was that it just feels like a soap opera. And I still stand by that. I think it is very much, it's like a soap opera with dragons and that is fine. <laughs> but I feel like when there was these really like angry fanboys online, I was just like, it's just accept it for what it is. It's like <laughs> enjoyable. Yeah. It feels like a more nuanced soap opera this yeah. time around <laughs> yeah. as well. And, and and that's the other takeaway I get from it, is that it feels more considered and I don't want to do mm. much spoilers, but um Viserys, the king that Paddy is playing, is such a wonderful kind of meekish man, um, just a, a terrible king. And part of the joy of watching the show is seeing how terrible he is at ruling. He's yeah. not a great king at all. He makes lots of mistakes and errors of judgment. He keeps asking um, his daughter for advice. I mean, she seems to have a better head on her than yeah. him. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and what I love about this is just the way that this show is sort of leaning into giving us like an idea of his interiority. Yeah. We get to yes. see Viserys in his private chambers with his model collection yep. where he's building like the ancient Targaryen city from like before the fall. Well, he and gets paint- other people to build it for him. Yeah. He designs it. And then he like <laughs> tweaks around with it and plays it like it's an elaborate train set that he didn't actually put together himself. It's, it's incredible. Um, but it kind of shows him as this sort of broken man, this sort of boy as man who can't quite figure out his role as a ruler. You've mm. mentioned before that the throne is quite spiky and there's always this long-running story in George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire in Game of Thrones that the the throne rejects those who are not worthy of it by mm. cutting them. And so to see Paddy constantly covered in sores and getting cut by things left and right, it's a really evocative way of showing that even the throne itself is rejecting his rule in a way. <laughs> yes. So you're, you're definitely watching a kingdom in a weird decline that doesn't quite realise what's happening to it yet. and it's yeah. But it, nominally in a state of peace, as we're constantly mm. reminded. So this is the kind of, this is the calm before the storm. Yes. And it's not all that calm, but... At least, you know, the worst things that's happening is Paddy's getting spiked on the throne Um, rather than we can only presume that there's going to be, you know, greater, more violent conflict across the realm to come. And some people are getting nibbled by crabs. Well, we haven't got to the crabs yet. I feel like this is a very (laughs) anti-crab show. And look, I'm here for those crabs. (laughs) So final thoughts. Are you recommending it, Andy? Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. I, look, I was a I was a, a deep lover of Game of Thrones. Um, really until and right until the end, I I still thoroughly enjoyed the final season, despite its you know its many obvious faults. Um, I think this is I can't believe how you know 
back to form, this immediately yeah. seems. Literally the only thing, it, it shares the same theme song as Game of Thrones, and that's literally my only criticism. I completely understand why they did it to keep that kind of brand yeah. equity. Why, why, are you, yeah, why are you against it? I just think that it's, so, I think it's great on its own merits. And I mm. kind of, I, in a way, I don't want it to be yoked too hard to Game of Thrones, especially given how some people did indeed fall off. Like this is its own thing, and I think it's yeah. actually got a lot of room to grow. And also we have to mention, like we've already mentioned the prequel, you don't need to have seen the other Game of Thrones uh, series to to make sense of this world. No, not at all. Like there's mm. there's a few, you know. Oh, that's the great 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 grandfather of that character from Game of Thrones. But no, it would make perfect sense uh, if you if you hadn't seen that series. Yeah, for yeah, sure. There's enough intrigue happening here. Enough kind of bubbling plots. You've got a really good character sketch of all the main characters very quickly on. Um, the pace of this show is lightning fast. Like, we are moving years between Maybe episodes. a little too fast. There's some big time jumps. I hope we actually slow down a little. I'm kind of enjoying the time jumps because some <laughs> shows don't know how is to receding pace. so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't knock Patty. <laughs> I, I must say, though, we joke about, you know, or critics have said that there's not enough of that kind of snappy dialogue. I think they're just not listening hard enough. Patty's getting yeah. some sick burns in there. <laughs> Risa Farns, uh, quirk... <laughs> Someone he says, oh, I'll not be pulled into this mama's farce, which is something I wanted to say to people in, in, <laughs> in general conversation when they're trying to pull me into some BS. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know how you can complain about the dialogue in this show when Matt Smith walks on set and just chews scenery the oh, moment absolutely. he arrives. It's, a, it's yeah. a powerhouse performance from him and from a lot of the cast. And yeah. Also, we have to thank Paddy for that because the only reason he wanted to do this show in the role is because he wanted to work opposite Paddy. Oh. Really? So, oh, a, a fun anecdote wow. from an interview that I read that I just, you can tell their chemistry yeah. on set together when they're, because they are brothers they're and brothers, they get a lot yeah, of scenes works. together. Yeah. It, is, it is some of the highlights of the show. It's a real, you can, that familiar relationship, it really feels like older, younger brother. I believe yeah. the good morrow that they throw to one another. <laughs> Love that old timey yeah. dialogue. Yeah, and it's lovely hearing that background to it because it's it comes across. It's very well translated on screen. Uh, if you are interested or you haven't already got on board, uh, House of the Dragon is currently streaming on Binge, and you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. On tonight's show, we are catching up on some fantasy prequels. Um, just prior, you would have heard the wonderful Lewis Coleman with Face Transplant. I actually went to his gig last night for a new album that he's got out. But if you haven't checked out Method of Places, it's one of my Faye's albums from that year. So go buy it. Uh, so, yeah. Should we just get straight into this one? I feel like I've got, I've got a little clip to play for Lord of the Rings. This is Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. So when the great foe Morgoth destroyed the very light of our home. We resisted. And a legion of elves went to war. We left Valinor, our home, and journeyed to a distant realm. One filled with untold perils and strange creatures beyond count. A place known as Middle Earth. <laughs> Middle Earth? You've been there, right, Adam? I, I like to think so. <laughs> Actually, Andy has. Yeah, I've been to, uh, yeah, to Hobbiton. <laughs> it was genuinely one of the best days of my life. <laughs> 
Anyway, Adam, tell us about uh, Rings of Power. Yeah, look, it's been around eight years <laughs> since The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, hit cinemas, maybe broke Peter Jackson's mind in the process of creating those films. That was the last big Lord of the Rings film that we had in cinema. And finally, at last, we are back in Middle-earth with The Lord of Rings, The Rings of Power. It's a long sentence, and it's the brand new adaptation of the work of J.R.R. Tolkien from Amazon Studios. Rings of Power has been entrusted by Amazon to first-time television showrunners Patrick McKay and John D. Payne, who have had writing credits for things like Godzilla vs. King Kong, Star Trek Beyond, and Jungle Cruise with Dwayne Johnson, which is, you know, that movie based on a a Disney ride. Yeah. Um, Great credits. Uh, The cast is relatively young and fresh-faced, led by Welsh actor Morph Clark, who you might know from Saint Maud and the personal history of David Copperfield, which is an awesome film. I actually watched it the other day as a palate cleanser after these three episodes. Um, And, you know, this is where it gets wonky. This is an adaptation of the appendices and notes from Tolkien's Middle-Earth universe, and particularly a one fragment point of time in the second age of Middle-Earth. This is thousands and thousands of years ago before the events of Lord of the Rings. So um, there's been a bit of, like online discourse about how to compare that to and one great online article said imagine if the sopranos did a prequel set in ancient italy <laughs> that's kind of how far back we're going and so but why elves are, elves are like endlessly useful so exactly. you can get That'd away be like with if this. junior soprano lived like five thousand years and was still yeah, five thousand bc um And so the reason why we're in this setting is because these were the only rights that Amazon was able to secure. A lot of the film and television rights and adaption rights for Lord of the Rings are held up and secured by different organizations and lots of Byzantine Hollywood work. But they were able to get these particular rights by negotiating directly with the Tolkien estate and who knows how much money they paid for them. We do know, actually. Well, yeah. Give us a lot. It's 250 mil for the rights alone. Yeah, so if I were to tell you that The Rings of Power is the single most expensive (laughs) screen production in history, I don't think you'd be shocked. It's a $1 billion vanity project, a fever dream-like experience that exists solely because the world's richest man wanted to have his elf television show. What did everyone else think about this? Uh, Look, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, so I know this is not the best... um... for a review show but you know sometimes you just love going back into a universe because you just like it as a fan that's kind of where i'm coming at it from so yes i got a critical eye to it but part of me is like i i will keep watching it even when i know there's elements i don't love how do you how do you feel andy are you are you a lord of the rings fan anyway uh, oh, at least, uh, you know, two or three times a year, we do the full rewatch yeah, of the uh, extended yeah. editions, all 12 hours. <laughs> so I agree with you. You know, I want to spend time uh, in, in Middle Earth, in this mm. in this world. And you know what? I was, uh, you mentioned the, the uh, Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy, which followed up the Lord of the Rings films, and I think was widely seen as a disappointment, even though it made a whole lot of money. And I think the difficulty with that series was that it, for a lot of people, it didn't feel like going home mm. to Middle Earth. Like, to me... Uh, Rings of Power does. Like, right away, I know it's different. I know it's new and some of the faces are fresh. But it f- And, you know, Jackson isn't even involved in a, in a creative capacity. Which is where some of the criticism has come from. But strangely enough, like, this feels like Jackson's Middle Earth to me. And they are doing their hardest to try and give you that feeling, right? They've got Bear McCreary on who's doing the composition, the score for this. Yes. Who's, you know, fantastic composer. He worked on Battlestar Galactica, which I thought had a fantastic soundtrack mm-hmm. to it. Um, but here it's almost like 
Bear McCreary has become an AI algorithm and has just taken all of Howard Shaw's music from the the first trilogy and sort of reworked it in weird evocative ways where I'll get like the slight whisper and remembrance of what I should feel the elf music will be, but not quite touching on the touchstones. It's like we're getting real subtle leap motifs, but just (laughs) enough so that we're not going to get sued by New Line Cinema, who has like most of the rights and Warner Brothers. Mm. And it's this really sort of strange area where they're trying to evoke the Jackson trilogy and the visual essence of it without being able to do it. So Mm. um, not much spoilers here. We know Sauron is involved in this. There is an Eye of Sauron here, but it looks slightly different and they can't call it the Eye of Sauron. (laughs) Um, There's all sorts of strange things going on in this thing it's I'm, I'm i'm fascinated by the copyright web that goes behind this show so they, hobbits, they, not hobbits yeah they have a lord of the rings show a property where they're not allowed to use the word hobbits so we can only have the precursor race to the hobbits the halffoots which was one third of the genealogy that became the modern hobbit that lives in the shire there's two other branchings off that mm. i guess are not going to be on the show who cares why do i know that <laughs> I've, I've read the lord of the rings too many times um and the, the clip of audio that you played, I think, kind of sums up where this show is sort of really wonky, which is that was some dialogue from um, Galadriel talking yeah. about the first age of the elves, why they went to uh, Middle-earth and waged a war against the Dark Lord Morgoth. Um, we're not going to see any of that in this show because they don't have the rights to it. So they have given us an yeah. illusion to the past, but we're never really going to actually be able to experience all those fun things. We're now in the, after all that interesting stuff has ended, we're in the weird nebulous space of, uh. Well, it does give the showrunners a tremendous amount of uh, creative license, though, in that sense, because they are able to basically mine these appendices, like you said, mm. Andy, and and not hopefully strike too much of a comparison with the, the movies that came before them. Um, I feel like we can't talk about Rings of Power without talking about some of the controversy, particularly the Twitter storm. Well, Twitter storm, can we call it that? Um, but storm too- probably gives it a bit much credit, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Twitter whimper. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> precisely. Well, we've had two um, very significant men weigh in, Neil Gaiman and Elon Musk. Um, Andy, do you just want to give us a, a recap on what's happened there? <laughs> so, so Elon Musk, I guess, what, of, officially world's richest man as of recently? Yeah, and I, I, I think it's really Jeff yeah. because isn't Elon's like world's richest status because of his like stocks or something? And that's it's, just it's fantasy money. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Financial speculation. Yeah. So, you know, I guess semi, you know, tech innovator slash company purchaser and uh, professional troll Elon Musk has weighed in saying he found the show difficult uh, to relate to because there Since weren't enough. Richest man. Yeah, there, were, <laughs> there weren't enough, which is ironic given that there are many kind of godlike characters here. Um, and a lot I think of he, unlikable men in the show. I don't understand. Yeah, he's a, he, he wanted there to be more likable male characters in the show, which I think just shows him being a little small-minded because uh, there are so many likeable characters in this, including the wonderful uh, Elrond. Uh, and, of course, my favourite, we get a lot more dwarf content, which I knew yes. was coming this show, yep. and I'm so stu- stoked on that. And we get the wonderful dwarf prince Durin, who, as you say, it's funny you mentioned mining. Uh, this is before <laughs> the dwarves mined, you know, too deep. Uh, and whatever they might find is, you know, well, we've got some... Can we spoil for the Lord of the Rings? Yeah, the Jackson had, films? you've had eight years. We're Come getting on. a Balrog. We're getting the Balrog. <laughs> They're coming back. I'm so excited. I like. I think they've actually done a, a lot to. You mentioned the Halfwoods. Uh, you know, there's an interesting idea that they're not allowed to contradict, or the showrunners are uh, not allowed to contradict uh, Tolkien's work. Yeah. And the there's nothing hobbity in this 
era, supposedly, of, of the work. So the Harfoot characters remain kind of hidden from the outside world with these elaborate contraptions and a kind of movable society, which I just loved as a kind of clever uh, workaround innovation. Um, I guess, yeah, by all accounts, Neil Gaiman, who, of course, is a... Is that how you pronounce that? I've been saying Gaiman. I okay. think Gaiman's probably correct. I'm oh. probably... Sorry, Neil. <laughs> Neil. Yeah. We'll just call him Neil. Yeah. So Neil has weighed in, <laughs> uh, I guess, kind of, you know, uh, tossing back against uh, against Musk saying that, you know, he won't ask Musk about uh, for advice on failing to buy Twitter and he hopes Musk won't ask him uh, advice on, you know, story, story yes, writing. Yeah. So I think, look, I think we can ign- – I don't know why we care what Elon Musk no. thinks. But no. given that he, apart from, of course, his fabulous wealth, but like I don't think that that alone is enough for us to take his uh, his criticism seriously. I have a controversial statement. Go for um, it. <laughs> I think Elon Musk's comments were horrible, and they were kind of sexist in their tone because they yeah, were implying absolutely. that, like, you know, there's a there's a leading lady on this show. So how can I relate? But I think what the core of the the problem also, is welcome is to that our world buddy. is where are the characters? <laughs> Who are these characters? Yeah. I forgot Duran's name because I don't remember much about it. They hit rocks in an episode. I don't remember why Elrond was there. In terms of Elrond's pop uh, They're having a rock-hitting competition. I, I just, I'm mystified by the glacial pace of this plot, yeah. the lack of relatability in these characters. I mean, you're dealing with elves who were born from the gods, are blessed by the gods with immortality, are the only people gifted enough to be allowed to live with the gods out in the West. And we got an idea of how creepy that actually is in the first episode. Interesting interpretation. But these are not relatable character types. And I, when I think back to the um, the Peter Jackson trilogy, elves were sort of mysterious. They mm. were other. They were kind of like... Aloof. Aloof mm. and very unapproachable yeah. because of their immortality. And I liked that. And the way that Legolas worked as a character was his approachability came about his bonds that he grew with the Fellowship. Mm. He became a character that you could relate to because he had relationships and friendships with mortals that felt normal. Mm. Here it's Elrond and co just hanging out in Elfland, <laughs> doing elf chats. And I'm like, I don't know what you people are talking about. You I don't care yeah. I think about your motivation. This, You're building a forge whatever well you Um, know something that does delight me though about both these tv shows is that we do have um uh an unsmiling woman at the center of both of these (laughs) um both blonde women surprisingly enough but i I actually do think that they i'm willing to stick with rings of power i'm kind of leaning more towards you adam where i don't love it as much as i thought i would but i'm willing to give it the time because i i do just want to return to middle earth and and kind of sink into that world can i posit a a theory Mm, somewhat about readings is that and yes this is because i think there's an awful lot of you know men with too much money trying to um, compete with one another mm. so that we have these shows on at the same time, which is possibly the worst scheduling idea I've ever heard. Um, so I think it it does a disservice to both shows. Because mm. you by, end up comparing them? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it will be very, very common for people to be watching both per yeah. week, uh, only a couple of days apart. And inevitably it's going to make, and some there's been some criticism, it's going to make House of the Dragon look small by comparison because it does not have those hundreds and hundreds yeah, of millions. That's true. And at the same time, by comparison to House of the Dragon, um, uh, Rings of Power is going to look... Overstuffed. Overstuffed <laughs> and, and too kind of grand and ethereal mm. and it's going to look like a show about, you know, f- far-off superheroes rather than kind of mortal well, people. Yeah. I feel like I've gone in the other direction. This has made me feel like House of the Dragon is grand. It understands what it's trying to do. Mm. It feels... Um, like it has weight and heft about it. And then 
you know, Rings of Power is a fever dream. I'm like bouncing <laughs> between scenes that seem to have no purpose other than to be a really flashy splash of cash. It does this thing that like old school Star Trek used to do when it was on a budget where it like shows you like, we're going to this planet now and it's full of all these cool skyscrapers and we're going to talk to these aliens. But then they cut to like a shot and it's like one set with six people with like prosthetics on and that's all you see. <laughs> Actually, and I'm getting a bit of that with this. It's so... like, we're, we're going to the elf kingdom. <laughs> Check out this CGI. Okay, we're in one okay, room now with all the elves having a meeting. <laughs> That's it. We're done. Yeah. Um, hold up, though. CGI. There is a lot of of um, real sets in, in Rings of Power. Yeah, and, and they importantly... look great. But then you have directors that are just doing, like, shot reverse shot yeah, takes. Yeah, that's true. They've that's got true. these elaborate, beautiful sets, and they're not moving their cameras around. And I'm just like, oh, my God, please direct. Can we have a little nerdy detour, though, just into the costuming and the sets? So the orcs, the orc um, outfits, full body latex suits, not at all animated. Um, we've got uh, the... And they look spectacular. They you do. see a lot of them in the third yeah. episode. It looks absolutely magic. And we were the um, the sailboat was a real boat. <laughs> is a real boat, I should say. Um, the the um, Nanama, is that how you pronounce it? Numenor? Numenor. Numenor. So that is a city that was actually built in a parking lot. Um, and the um, with an actual pool of water at the docks, which is crazy, um, and the laneways and the buildings. Um, so you have these real spaces being created, so this real attention to detail. And I think if you do get into that sort of stuff, which I do, I think it's really fascinating to look at this and say, wow, what have they achieved? I've just noticed that it's coming very closely up to 7 o'clock, <laughs> 8 <laughs> o'clock. Um, so, yeah, final thoughts. It's I I love both these shows. I think I wish I could take them entirely separately and watch them a year apart because I think they both I want to stick with both because I think they both have different but important things to give. Look, I I, I love that Rings of Power is doing practical effects, that it's building sets, that it's doing really interesting things with prosthetics, but maybe it's because I played a lot of like big budget flashy video games, but I feel like I'm getting like a big graphics explosion. But the story is, like, non-existent. The pacing is not <laughs> developed. These characters have no soul. It's very, like, when Disney first started figuring out how it was going to, like, kind of just suck the life force out of Star Wars. We're in the early days of it. But in three episodes, Rings of Power has, like, killed the joy of, of, of televised <laughs> Lord of the Rings so for me. Crushing. I know I sound like I'm being really harsh. <laughs> it's like great. Everyone should positive. watch it. Amazon Prime. You know what? Um, we need a bit of comfort in these days. Adam and I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with it. So if you also want to stick with Rings of Power, it's currently on Amazon Prime. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with and <laughs> Adam, Andy. There's too many A names in this. <laughs> and Fluke. Um, we have been chatting about some of the fantasy prequels that are streaming right now: Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, and Lord of the Rings: Rings of Power. We also were joined earlier today by the CEO, co-founder, and executive director of Consent Labs, Angelique Wan, to talk about a new classification campaign that's going around non-consensual acts on screen. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.